Good afternoon. Uh, it is a, a pleasure for me to uh, bring us together for uh, the occasion, the address that we'll be hearing today. I'm looking up on the balcony now, and of course I do see some of our students, and it's great to have you here, you're in school already, but I see a really nice number of uh, guests from the Catholic community here on Cape Cod, family members, folks who had heard about today's presentation in their parish bulletin. And so my name is Chris Keevy. I'm the head of school, and I welcome you as our guests. And of course, uh, I welcome you, our students, as well. Our number one, primary, most important, most essential, only reason that we exist truly is to help you to know and love God. That's the reason for our school. If our school were simply about having classes and having you know, a drama program and having sports teams, we wouldn't need to exist. Those things already happen on all the other uh, high schools and middle schools on Cape. Our reason is different. We exist so that you can come to know God more closely. And one of the great challenges, and we'll call it an intellectual challenge, but one of the great challenges in really embracing a God-filled world is the challenge that's presented by modern ways of seeing science and seeing science as something that conflicts with religious faith, as though you have to choose one or the other. And that's a tough hurdle to overcome. That's an intellectual challenge that every believer faces. And so what we're doing today is providing you some perspective uh, that will help you with this tough, tough challenge as you grow in faith and as you grow in your knowledge of a God-filled world. And so to introduce our speaker today, I'll call forward our student council president, Maya Patterson. Maya, come on up, please. Good afternoon. Today, I have the privilege of introducing our guest speaker, she earned a bachelor's degree in Broadfield Science from East Texas State University, a PhD in chemistry from Pennsylvania State University, and a master's degree in dogmatic theology from Holy Apostles College and Seminary. Today's guest is also an adjunct professor at both Holy Apostles College and Seton Hall University. She is the author of Science Was Born of Christianity, The Teaching of Father Stanley L. Jackie, and Particles of Faith, a Catholic Guide to Navigating Science. Through her passion in Catholic theology and the various scientific fields, she has developed an appreciation for the harmonious nature of science and faith. This appreciation is also shared by our namesake, St. John Paul II, who once said, faith and reason are like the two wings in which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. We are fortunate to have the opportunity to learn from our guest experiences and perspective today. Please give a warm welcome to our guest speaker, Dr. Stacey Trinsakos. Thank you. Hello, thank you so much for that introduction. And thank you for having me here. Okay, well, I thought we would start off today with a test. I hear that you guys are sort of in the mood for taking a test. And you haven't had much of that lately. So raise your hand if you would like to start with one of those tests where you fill in the bubbles 
and sit here for a few hours, and then I'll just get your feedback and try to respond. You want to take a test? <laughs> so uh, we are ready for that. Okay, let's see. I'm joking. I'm not going to give you a test. I am going to try to take your mind off of tests and um, talk to you a little bit about truth. So I'm going to talk today about, I, I like the title of my book, Particles of Faith. The uh, publisher wrote that title, and um, it took me a full week to realize that it rhymes with Articles of Faith, uh, because I had my mind set on another title. Um, but th this, I like this title, because it really does reflect what I want to say today about how I live the integration of faith and science, and I, and I want to show you how to do it, too. Um, my goal when I'm finished talking is that I want you to have this gift of seeing more of reality. That's what it's all about. I mean, every day of our life, we're, we're trying to get to heaven, and we're looking out at the world, and we're trying to see the world the way the church sees the world. We're trying to see the universe. And there's truth in a lot of places. There's truth in science. There's, of course, truth from divine revelation and everything that we learn in the Catholic Church. So I want to talk about how, um, how you can kind of be a Catholic and a nerd and see more of reality in doing so, how, how you can just look out at things and it changes what you see. This is quiz time. Does anybody have all the reactions of photosynthesis memorized yet? <laughs> Some of you do. There are a lot, and I remember, um, I remember being your age, and I already loved trees, and I already loved, um, you know, as a kid when my mom told me that God made everything, I remember being in awe of that. I remember looking at trees and clouds and wondering, you know, how did those bugs get made? And when I went to high school and started having to memorize the reactions in photosynthesis, it really did blow my mind. I mean, you go out and you look at a tree and you're thinking about what's happening in those leaves. And it, it is, that's the new dimension of reality I'm talking about. Well, when I went off to college, um, I stopped going to church and I stopped being religious. I grew up Southern Baptist in Texas. And I just didn't think I needed religion anymore because like a lot of people still do today and a lot of people did in my time, I thought science probably had more answers for me. I thought science was, you know, the sophisticated thing and I didn't need to go to church anymore and I didn't need to do all those things I grew up doing. Um, and, and plus being Southern Baptist, there weren't a lot of answers for things either. I, I had a lot of questions and there were no answers. And I became intrigued by science because I had always loved science. Um, and I started pursuing a career in science. When I got ready to go off to graduate school, to go do graduate research at Penn State, I wanted to pick a topic that would give back to the world. You know, I wasn't religious, but I still wanted to do something good with my career. I wanted to do something good for humanity. Have you ever heard of climate change? Anybody ever heard of climate change? Well, they were talking about it back in my day, too, in the 90s. Um, they were still talking about it. And there was this, I mean, I was, I was so passionate about it, I would chase people around the library, making sure they didn't waste paper, making sure they would put the paper in the recycling bin, and scolding my fellow students. 
And I wouldn't drive a lot of places. I wanted to walk or take my bike because I was trying to conserve because we were worried then, just like we are now, about the ozone layer and about chlorofluorocarbons and about uh, running out of fossil fuels and renewable resources. And I read a book about nanotechnology and I thought, you know, if somebody could figure out how to do this, then we could have another way to capture energy from the sun and turn it into things we needed. So I thought it would be a good um, replacement for energy sources. Turns out I didn't have an original thought. There were people doing research in that area already, and I wrote to one man at Penn State who um, accepted me into his lab. So I thought my dreams had come true. I was going off to do something intelligent. I was going to do chemical research that required building these nanocomposites. So nanotechnology was a big word back in my day, just like climate change was, and global warming, they were calling it then. But our project, I'm gonna tell you about this project. There's a reason, I'm not trying to bore you to death with scientific research, although scientists love to talk about the research. I want to give you a feel for the comeuppance that I got, okay? As a scientist, trying her hardest to do the right thing. Um, I think of it sometimes as like wrestling with God in, a, in my own way. Um, our pro so I'm I have to explain a little bit about the project, it's just to give you an understanding of, of how miserably we failed. Um, this cabocil over here is a silica ball. They're 50 nanometers in diameter, very, very, very tiny. So just like put your chemistry glasses on and shrink your mind down into this abstract world because you can't see this stuff. You have to do it abstractly. We were growing layers of negatively charged sheets and positively charged polymers. So you put the cabocil into a solution of negative sheets, put it in a solution where the positive polymers are floating around and you stick it on. And we were building nanocomposites that way. I mean, it was a lot of work because you had to rinse everything and do it. It was all in a test tube and you can't really see what you're doing and you have to go analyze it with all these instruments. And it, it took a week or so to build a composite. But the point was, we developed these two molecules. See those molecules up there? That one over there with the, the, the three pair of rings around it is like chlorophyll. So we made a molecule that does like chlorophyll. It will absorb energy from the sun and the electrons in it will go woohoo and they'll get excited and jump. And then you want to try to tell them go that way and get the electrons to go where you want them to go. And when you get electrons moving, then you have chemical energy. You can make stuff with those electrons. They're, they're the energy source. Um, so we had that. We had this other polymer that would grab the electron when it got excited. And we built this composite. It wasn't very sophisticated. I mean, it was and it wasn't. But that's all we did. We, we brewed these layers. We were trying to get the electron. It's a little bitty slide up there, but you can just see the woohoo, the jump. We were trying to get the electron to jump to a higher energy level and then transfer. We were just trying to get it to transfer one time and stay there long enough to measure it, okay? So do you understand what I'm saying? That's, that's all we were doing, and that was cutting-edge technology <laughs> in the 90s, and it still is today because it, it's, it's a very hard thing to do. The hard thing is to get things structured so that you can control where electrons go. 
I mean, you know from your chemistry classes, we really don't know what electrons are doing. We just kind of have these probabilities about where they like to be. But it, it's hard to control them. This was our composite. So we had these big, fancy transition electron microscopes. I go in there, I'm in the room with the microscopes as big as the wall. I'm trying to shoot electrons at my composite and see what's, what it looks like. This is the composite without the coatings of polymers and sheets on it. That's the, that's the composite with the polymers and sheets on it. And we were very technical about it. We were like, yep, looks like we got stuff to layer. We called it a modeled coating. And then we took it down into the lab, and I got my big laser, the 532 nanometer light, and we shot it at a little pinky-sized cuvette of these composites, and we had femtosecond laser flash spectroscopy. I like to say that. <laughs> femtosecond laser flash spectroscopy. We got the light to shoot at the composite, and we split the light off with a little mirror, and we got it to go into a spectroscopy instrument, um, so that just when it would hit the sample and the electron would jump, we could catch the difference in the absorption of light. We could catch it. You could see things happen on a very, very fast time scale. And let me tell you something. When you're human with this, these hands that are this big and you're trying to tweak all of this stuff, it's like trying to thread a noodle of spaghetti through a needle that you're going to sew something like it's it's almost impossible to get the light to go where you want it to go at the same time and catch the thing that happens we were able to do one jump okay so you're going to be so impressed we got the electron to jump 30 percent quantum yield that means for every photon that hit our samples for every hundred photons 30 electrons Went woo all the electrons went woohoo because they get excited when they get aimed when they absorb that certain wavelength of light. We got 30% of them to actually jump across that layer and stay put with a half-life of 21 microseconds. That was considered good enough to be published in the Journal of the American Chemical Society. It went into a chapter in a book from the um, American Chemical Society on um, electron transfer uh, projects. It got us some notoriety as scientists, but the point is the comeuppance. So when that project ended, my professor said, okay, uh, I want you now to be the lead of the project. And he pointed at me and he said, I want you to do, guess what the next step is in a project like this? What do you do after you do one jump? What comes next? Two jumps. So the professor's like, I want you to build another layer on the composite and do two jumps. I want the electron to jump twice. Excite it, get it to jump twice, and stay put for a while to measure it. That will be fabulous. We'll be well on our way to making a new energy source because we can capture the, the energy from light and use it as chemical energy. I never could get it to work. When you're in graduate school trying to get a PhD, if you don't do anything, you don't get to graduate. They don't just give you a degree for trying real hard for four years. And I was starting to panic. And there was one day, so I'm building up to this, this moment, there was one day I remember so vividly. It stood out in my mind, especially after I converted, looking back over those years, what was it, what was it? There was one day, I'm in charge of the project. I've been working on it for over a year. 
and it's mind, I mean, it's, it's mind-numbing. You go in the lab, people think scientists do all this great stuff. When you get to specialized projects, you're just doing this, it's like cooking. It's like trying to make the same batch of cookies over and over again, and you can't get them to taste right. And I would go in the lab every day and make my samples, make my samples, test my samples, try to get this, I was so sick of making those samples. Take them down to the lab, set up the laser equipment, put all the spectroscopy stuff where it's supposed to go, aim it, shoot it, look at the data, and be like, nothing. <laughs> Didn't work. Go back and figure something else out. See what you're not doing right. There was one day I said, you know what, I'm going to look in a biochemistry textbook because this has been done before. <laughs> I remember my high school classes. I looked in the biochemistry textbook and I saw the reactions for photosynthesis. And I started, literally, I started to panic. I had lost sight of what leaves are doing anyway. And I started to panic. And I thought, there's, there's no way I'm going to crack this mystery. There's no way I'm going to get molecules to stay where I want them to stay, to do what I want them to do so I can graduate. There's no way I'm going to be able to do this. And I remember I went over to my window of my lab, which was on the third floor, and I looked out, and my eyes fell on this old ginkgo biloba tree. Okay, it's a very tall tree with erratic branches. Beautiful tree. I just never noticed it before. Here I go in my lab every day, going to do two steps of photosynthesis, going to do two steps. And I just walk by all these trees and ignore them. And I looked at that tree, and it hit me what I was seeing happening in front of my very eyes. You know, because I'm all in, in, the, I'm in the head zone of chemistry, you know, look at, thinking about atoms and molecules and, and electrons. And it hit me, and I was starting to get mad. I'm like, I know what you're up to. I know what you're doing. You're out there absorbing photons of light from the sun, and you've got your chlorophyll molecules with your magnesium in the center, and you've got... And you've got pigment molecules with slight chemical differences such that you can absorb tree any wavelength of light you want to from the sun. And then you're taking, you've got the, these antennas of all these pigment molecules and chlorophyll molecules clustered together in the lipid bilayer, absorbing 90% of the photons of light and all your electrons are jumping. And they're not just jumping one or two times, they're going into the Z scheme of photosynthesis where they go into photosystem two and they, they go to a bound plastoquinone to another plastoquinone to a pool of plastoquinone and then they start reducing things and then NADP plus and the other photosystem makes NADPH and that energy is used and it sets up this, this hydrogen hydrogen ion gradient, this proton gradient, and then it makes ATP out of adenosine diphosphate and a phosphate group donor, and then that's just the light reactions, and then it goes into the dark reactions, and then you have carbon dioxide, which for goodness sake, that's the stuff we exhale. Carbon dioxide from the air is used with that chemical energy to make the three carbon precursors for carbohydrates, sugars, cellulose the things, you know, that things need to live. Richard Feynman, the great physicist, once said, trees are made of air. And he was dead serious and, and right. Trees are made of air. We breathe out carbon dioxide. Trees take water and light from the sun, photons of light streaming down from the sun, and they turn it into biomass. That's how, you, that's how the trees make the biological molecules that get eaten and go into the life cycle and make air. And I was thinking to myself, 
It's not just that we make trees out of air. It's like all the living things get made out of air if you look at it that way because it all starts with carbon dioxide and water and sunlight. That's how the energy gets into the planet. And I was thinking that day, it just started hitting me. Click, 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 click. Life on this planet is connected at the atomic level in very precise ways. And I thought, why stop there? Why stop there? Where do the elements come from? Where do the elements come from that make up all this stuff? Where do the elements come from that make the carbon and the oxygen? They come from stars. It's not just that life on this planet is interconnected, it's that everything's interconnected with the universe. The elements get made out there in, in the, the red giants and the white dwarves and the supernova explosions, and then somehow all these elements got to Earth, and here we are today. And there I was, standing at that window, looking at that tree, having this epiphany. Now, the most logical thing in the world is to ask that next question. Because you like to be logical, right? And you don't want to be afraid of following your logic to its final conclusion. The most logical thing in the world is to go, who made that tree? So I want to talk to him, because I need to graduate. Who made that tree? And I saw it for that moment. And I did have this experience where I was fighting with myself. Who made that tree? And I was standing there looking at that tree, and I didn't, you would think I would just fall to my knees right there and convert and accept the gift of faith and, and weep for joy that the tree's even there. But that's not what I did. And looking back on that moment so many times, I wondered why didn't I do that? Because I wanted to graduate. All I cared about was graduating. I actually got mad at the tree. I turned around. I picked up my samples. I threw them in the trash can. I threw my data away. I told my professor, I can't do it. I never did publish a paper with two steps. I did take those balls over there. And while people were trying to crystallize inorganic compounds into zeolites and three-dimensional porous networks, I smashed a whole bunch of those balls together because I had a lot left over. I smashed them together. I put the precursors for Bakelite polymer in between the balls, and then I dissolved the balls away with hydrofluoric acid. I'm like, hey, y'all, I did it. I didn't have to crystallize anything. <laughs> we just made a template. And that got published in Science Journal, which when you do that, you get to graduate. So I graduated. It worked out fine. I did not convert for 15 more years, but I never forgot that moment. Let me show you what I saw that day. This was what I was trying to reproduce. This is the Z scheme of photosynthesis. All I want you to look at are those many steps. Each one of those is finely tuned to happen just so, and it clicks away faster than you can even imagine out there in all the trees right now. It's not just that. This is how the biochemistry textbook depicted photosynthesis. But it's not just that either. This is the page I was looking at. <laughs> okay? Do you understand why I was crying? <laughs> this is the page I was looking at. It's not just that light energy comes from the sun and the trees make their structural stuff and their, their energy stuff. It all gets out into the rest of... This is the metabolic pathways. Somebody wrote down all the metabolic pathways. It all fits together. And this is why I was panicking. It's why I had that moment. Who created this? Who holds this in existence? Who says all these chemical reactions have to happen like that? When I did convert, I came back to this page, and I was like, thank you, God. 
Because if these things didn't happen, if our electrons didn't stay in the orbitals and do their molecular bonding and do the things they're supposed to do, we wouldn't be able to take our next breath. Our heart wouldn't be beating. And don't forget the stars. I always like to look at this. And, and this is one of those things now, when I do look up at the stars, I'm sure you've heard this before, the light you're looking at, the star may not even be there anymore. It may have been traveling for, for so long, for so far away, that the star's not even there. Um, but we can see this stuff. And, and so that was, that was the thing that stayed in my mind as I got up to conversion later on. When I did in 2006, when I did decide that I wanted to become Catholic, and the reason I decided I wanted to become Catholic is because there were answers. I remember the first thing I read in the catechism was that children are gifts. Because until that point, what the secular society had told me as a young woman was, I need to have a big job, I need to only have kids if I want those things for accessories, you know. I need, to, I need to just look out for number one. And I had never heard that children are gifts before. And it changed the way I looked. I mean, literally, at my thesis defense, I pointed to children, and I, said, I called them um, highly complex multi-composite assemblies. And when I became Catholic, I realized they're highly complex multi-composite assemblies with rational souls, which kind of changes everything. Um, but I heard that they're gifts. I decided then to be open to life. I decided that children are the most important thing a person can devote herself to or that I wanted to devote myself to. I had I'd always wanted to be like my mother. I'd always wanted to, to be a mother. And so I decided to leave my job. I got a job at DuPont. I decided to leave that job and be open to life. But what I learned in all of that, that exploration and started thinking about why was it so hard for me to do that? Why, what, what was I afraid of? Um, something that, that stuck with me, and you know I had to have Pope St. John Paul II quote here, and the same one that, she, that you used in the beginning. It's such a powerful thing, because this encyclical, to me, wasn't just about faith and reason. It was more about the second part of this quote, how to know yourself. I think that's the problem that we live in a culture today. There's a lot of people that don't understand that's what faith is about. It's about knowing yourself, how God made you, what you're made to do, why we even do science, why we even care about saving the planet in the first place. And I love that part about how to know yourself. And so since then, as I became Catholic and started thinking more about science, then I wanted to, then I wanted to go back and review everything I'd learned before because I started to see that science is the study of the handiwork of God. When we study photosynthesis, we're trying to figure out how God created that. We're trying to figure out what's going on. And I, I came to one thing, so this is totally not scientific, is it? But it, to me, so this, is, this was my reasoning. Logically speaking, it's not hard to look at science and see God. It's not hard to look at science and say, yeah, somebody had to make that, okay? Because if, if somebody made one of my intelligently designed nanocomposites in the lab and somebody came along and looked at it and I said, nobody made that, nobody would believe me. Like, somebody had to make that. 
It's very logical to see God in creation. Our, our, our faith teaches us that. That's part of catechism. It's very logical to see the hand of God in creation. But I think what scares so many people away... See, I didn't grow up going to confession. I didn't grow up with somebody telling me, it's okay, lightning won't strike you dead when you go in there and tell the priest your sins. I didn't know that. And when you're an adult and you start converting, you have a lot to face up to. And that was one of the most difficult things for me. Because it's like God just knew a little too much about me, right? Because a chemist doesn't hear Luke 12, 7, where it says God knows all the hairs on your head. A chemist doesn't hear that. A chemist hears, okay, yeah, he knows where all the quarks and electrons are and all the atoms and all the molecules that make up the keratin in my head. And it's a little different because you have a knowledge about the tinkering of things at the atomic level. And it, it's more profound. You're, you're thinking the God that made that knows and loves me. And that's kind of hard to accept. It's kind of hard to accept the personal part. So I think you can get to deism pretty quickly from looking at nature. But the personal part, with, which the Catholic faith teaches us, is that you do have to look in the mirror and face up to your life. And so that was hard for me, but it, it was, a, you have to do that, right? You have to, that's what we're taught, and that's what we know in the sacraments. But then the next part was to amend my ways. And I know this doesn't have anything to do with photosynthesis, but it was part of my process. It's part of how I learned to integrate faith and science in my life. I had to amend my ways, because here's the thing. Logic, right? I like for things to make sense. I'm sure you guys like for things to make sense. Like, if you're gonna, if you're gonna devote yourself to learning something and commit your life to it, it's got to make sense. Well, I, I was not sure what the truth was going to demand of me. It's one thing to say, I can do stoichiometry and I can figure out how much, I can figure out what the molarity is of this titration if I know what the molarity is of my standard solution. You know, you can calculate and you can do it and you can like, well, that works, that's so good. Or you can synthesize aspirin or something. It's one thing to be able to know science at that level and be able to predict what's gonna happen. That's truth, right? Truth is that if you stand under a skyscraper and somebody drops a rock off of it, you might think you could stand there for an hour and it wouldn't hit you on the head, but you would be wrong because the truth is it will fall at 9.8 meters per second squared and it most certainly will hit you on the head if you stand there long enough. You can't just break the laws of nature. And if you want to know the truth, you have to be willing when you convert. And conversion is an ongoing process for all of us, even if you're born Catholic. You have to be able to face the truth with courage. You have to believe that truth will set you free. And then once you're like, I know truth will set me free, and sometimes the truth might be hard, it might ask me to do things that are hard, it might ask me to do things that I don't really understand. Because when, when you've never understood being open to life and suddenly you're like, okay, I'm open to life, and then you have four babies in five years, it's kind of like, uh, you're not really sure if you can do it. You don't, you don't know, you wanna run from it. But the thing is about truth, if you, don't, if you don't have the courage to amend your ways because you're seeking truth, what are you doing? What's the point? What's the point of life if you're not trying to find the truth? And if you're trying to find the truth and you do find it, why wouldn't you make whatever changes you need to make 
to live it. And that is how it was for me. I call it the laboratory of my life. As people would ask me then if I interacted with atheists, they would say, how can you be a scientist and decide to be so devoted as a Catholic? I'm like, because. Because, because I tested it out in the laboratory of my life. I'm very method- methodological about things. I, I have to test things. When it came to the sacraments, I didn't understand why you need to go to Mass, because it's an obligation. I didn't understand that you had to be there and you have to take that obligation seriously, but I did it. Because I know from doing scientific research, if you don't go in the lab and roll your sleeves up and do the experiments, you don't know what happens. You can listen to other people tell you what happens, but you won't know for yourself what happens. And so I did that. I, I said, we call it, we grant, I granted assent of the will to the faith. I said, I want to know God more so I can love God more. And I agree to do these things. And I started to understand, I'm sure some of you have had this experience too, I started to understand why we go to confession. I started to understand why Mass is an obligation. I started to understand why the Eucharist is the center of everything. I started to understand about the Trinity and the Incarnation because I started to study theology and and find those answers. And I started to see how it all fits together. For example, with the Holy Trinity, one of the things... So I studied... Then I studied dogmatic theology. I liked it because of physics, okay? Dogmatic theology, systematic theology, I was tickled pink to discover that the church, that St. Thomas Aquinas calls theology the highest science. I'm like, yeah, buddy, it is. It's the highest science because its object is God. We take what God has revealed and we derive equations from it. I mean, that's pretty much what doctrine is. The church, as meticulously as a physicist with his or her variables and primes and all of, if you derive the linear motion equations in physics class where you break your pencils, (laughs) it's the same way though. In physics and chemistry, you take what we observe in the natural world and derive equations to explain the motion of things. In dogmatic theology, you take what God revealed things that reason never would have found, things we, we never would have come up with the Holy Trinity on our own. We never would have figured out the Incarnation. Our reason can't get us there. We had to, it had to be revealed to us. But then when it was revealed, that's where every teaching of the Catholic Church comes from. It's all tied to that logically. That's why they have heresy. That's why they're so care- the Church was always so careful to avoid heresy, because if you say one little thing wrong, it's just like missing a, missing a negative sign in your physics equation. You blow the whole thing. You, you totally go off track in the logic. You have to stay with the careful thinking. And I love that. The Holy Trinity, that, that, the, that the Son is called the Word also, that it was a conception, like a thought in the mind of God. How when we have thoughts, we can't just think up a universe because we're human and we can't, our thoughts are always going to be incomplete. But when God thinks a son, that's calling it, he conceived it, he, he thought it. And that's where the word word came from. And then I found out that's why we say in the beginning there was order, in the beginning of St. John's Gospel. And it started to make sense to me. Of course the world is order. The church has always looked at 
the universe as the creation of God and expected to find order. Science was not born in a Christian culture by accident. Modern science rose out of a Christian view. And then I understood about how the Father and the Son together spirate the Holy Spirit, how there's the Holy Spirit. And when I understood that, it's had such an impact on me, this deriving these doctrines, because I thought that that makes sense of our lives. Because if you just think you're a highly complex, multi-composite assembly, your heart can beat until that very last day, and then your heart just doesn't beat anymore. And that's it. Your molecules decompose, and you go back to being worm food. But if there's the Holy Trinity, and we're made in the image and likeness of God, and we have a rational soul with the powers of intellect and will, I started to understand what it means to practice virtue. I started to understand why it matters that you care about these things. But it was in thinking scientifically that I started to understand that stuff. I understood that I am more than just particles. And we're all more than just particles. We're, we are human persons. Um, and I understood then why we are made to live in communion, because that's what the Holy Trinity is about too. Communion. I started to understand that it's okay to say to myself, gee, I really want to belong. I really want to have a family. I really want to have a social network. I really want to be not at odds with people I've harmed in the past. I really need that communion. We all need it. We're made for it. And once I understood we're made for it, then I was able to go out and amend relationships and build relationships and do all those things that make you fully human, that help you know yourself. I started to understand the human person. And then I heard about angels. This is what they look like. They don't have wings and hair, you know, and they don't fly around. Um, they don't hover over children on bridges. Um, they, but we have to have, and I thought, I know what they're doing. The drawings, the paintings, those are models, because we, we do that with atoms. I know this. We do this with atoms. We have models in science, right? I've never seen an atom. I, I mean, I gave my life to chemistry, I thought, and I'd never seen an atom before. Somebody said, how can you have faith in angel, that angels exist? Like, I've never seen an atom either, and I was a chemist. But it's an abstract kind of thinking. It's something beyond the imagination. But we have to have models to be able to imagine things. But it helped me understand why we even do science. You wouldn't think angels would help you understand why you do science. But it did, because I was reading St. Thomas's treatise on the angels, and he said they don't have discursive knowledge. I'm like, yeah, but we do, right? Angels don't have bodies, but we have bodies. We can't just look out at the entire landscape and know everything all at once. We don't just know all we're supposed to know in an instant. We have to go through the scientific method. We have to observe we have to take in with our senses. We have to process abstractly with our intellects. And we come up with theories. But our theories are never completely right, and so it's constantly going. And that really, believe it or not, understanding angels helped me understand why science is a uniquely human endeavor. It also made me think that Niels Bohr probably would have been much wiser if he had listened to his guardian angel. Maybe he could have understood about... Um, quantum um, jumping or jumping between energy levels a little better 
I realize it wasn't such a such a crazy idea. But I think they're they're part of it. I mean, the thing that I think about a lot is the periodic table. Because I found the answer to suffering in the periodic table. Think about it. You probably found suffering in the periodic table. <laughs> but it started to make sense to me when I had, I, um, in being open to life, I had five children, five more children. I already had two. But then I also suffered five miscarriages. And I, had, I remember having the thought, you know, what's the point of being open to life if they're just going to die? And I had to think about that. And I had this moment where I was, I was out. Uh, we lived in the Adirondack Mountains with the lake. And I was out looking at the sky and the trees, kind of getting back to what I had always loved as a child. And I was thinking, you know, I don't understand this. I don't understand. And I was looking out. And I was kind of feeling like um, Musafa and the Lion King, you know. So like I was talking to the children, like, my children... I'm your mother. I felt kind of weird. I didn't know what I was doing. But then I thought, you know, I know what I'm doing. I was reminded of that mother in the second Maccabee story. The, Jew, the Jewish mother whose sons were martyred as she watched. It's like, I feel like I've suffered this enormous loss. But what did that mother do? What did she say? What did she say to her last son? This is the first place in the Bible where creation out of nothing is mentioned specifically. And she was looking out at the world, at the order, at nature. She said, if God can make all of this, and if he can give us life, if he can make us, then of course he's going to give you back the breath of life. Of course there must be everlasting life. And, and I got it then. I thought, you know, oddly enough, that strange situation, I was looking out at this whole landscape, at the lake we lived on, at the pine trees, at the sky and the sun that day. I was thinking about photosynthesis. I was thinking about all of it's made. God just took all these elements and swirled them together and made all of this. And I got a confidence. I thought, yeah, it is going to, if we have faith in God, if we follow God, if we ask God every day for the grace to do his will, it's going to be okay. We, we will suffer in this world, but that's because we don't understand the whole big picture. It's because we aren't God. We're here in our lives in this moment. I mean, it's kind of depressing when you think about it. Your whole life is just a march to, to, to the end of it. You know, you just keep going one day. Every day you live closer to the end of your life. And you, you, it's, it's a real flat, mechanical, empty way to exist if you don't know God. Because that, that is pretty much it, the end of your life. So in the periodic table, because, you know, you've learned in your chemistry class, and I'm not giving you a test over this, but the periodic table, in my opinion, should make people get down on their knees and weep for joy and say, thank you, God. Because, for one, there are no missing spots on the periodic table. Don't you think that's amazing? That, we, that scientists found elements with successive numbers of protons, one right after the other. And those protons and their densely packed nucleus give the positive charge that dictate how many electrons will be there in a neutral atom, and then there can be ions. But that dictates what the electrons do. 
And what is quantum mechanics? Quantum mechanics is a mathematical model that tell us electrons don't just go on different floors in the building, they go in different rooms in the building and only two of them can be in each room because they don't really like each other that much and they don't want to be close together. But the whole, the whole stability of an atom exists because electrons have to sort themselves out just so. And scientists have done computations if electrons were more massive than they are because they're one two thousandth the size of a proton. How come, scientists still don't understand this, how come a proton has the same magnitude of charge as an electron but it's 2,000 times bigger? Because if the electrons were bigger, they would crash into the nucleus. They've shown that with computations. So if things weren't just the way they are, the universe would have been a void. We never would have been here. But things are so precisely held with these um, electrons in the atoms. They're so precisely held that things exist. When you understand that the periodic table is organized by quantum mechanics, seven energy levels, S block, P block, D block, those are all our feeble efforts, and they're really good, or we wouldn't have smartphones. Those are all our feeble efforts to understand how God organized nature. And it really is amazing when you think about it. I think about this scripture sometimes. Lift up your eyes and look at the heavens. Who was it that made them? Who is it that marshals the full muster of their starry host, calling each by its name, not one of them missing from the ranks? It's like... That sounds like the periodic table to me. <laughs> but it, it, there's profound scripture like that throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, the early church writings. All this talk of seeing the universe this way as God's creation, as God's ordered creation, a, not as a God who made it and left it to go, but a God who loves us, who, who's, who, sent, who came as Christ and to redeem us and to show us how to live, and to show us how to know ourselves. And I love this from Pope Francis, in the light of faith. So I like to say it this way, science is the study of the handiwork of God. And I got that from, from this encyclical in part and from other places. But this is really, this is the childlike wonder, awe and wonder that we had I remember when I was a child, it was the easiest thing in the world for me to think faith and science went hand in hand because my mom told me God made everything, and it was real simple. I was like, wow, about everything. By stimulating wonder before the profound mystery of creation, faith broadens the horizons of reason to shed greater light on the world, which discloses itself to scientific investigation. And I, I think that's, that's the core of the integration of faith and science. It's how you see the world. Because when I go on walks, so do this next time you're out, outside, taking a walk, walking the dog. I have a German shepherd named Benny. She's named after Pope Benedict because I wanted my own German shepherd. And... We go on lots of walks together. And I used to walk. We lived, we just moved to Texas, but we lived in the Adirondack Mountains for five years on this property with the lake. And I, I spent a lot of time out there walking. I listened to the entire, one of my students said, you never read The Lord of the Rings? I'm like, no, I never did. It wasn't really like required reading in Texas when I was growing up. 
Um, it's like, you never read the Lord of the Rings. So I listened to the entire Lord of the Rings by audio tape, walking my dog. Sometimes at midnight, I was still out walking around, still reading. And I figured up, I walked 161 miles before those three books were over. But I used to walk out there, and it started hitting me, this is what it's all about. There was one night where I was looking at the stars, and snow was falling. I mean, a snowflake is almost heartbreaking, because each snowflake, they say they're, that they're, there's no two alike. We will really never know if there are. But when they fall through the air, they're recording the precise different pressure and temperature conditions as it falls. So no two snowflakes ever do go through the same trajectory. And then they just melt on your face and you never ever see them. It actually made me cry one time. So I'm like, there's so much beauty and we never even see them. They just melt, unappreciated. But, when, I mean, and this is kind of nerdy, I know, but when you're outside walking like that and you're seeing everything like the church sees the universe, when you're looking through the eyes of faith, not only are you thinking about photosynthesis, clicking away in the trees. I've made peace with the trees now. I'm not, I no longer am jealous of them. When you think about trees clicking away photosynthesis, and you think that you're surrounded by angels, if you're praying, you can pray the rosary, walk among the trees, and you're thinking about the atoms doing their thing, and you're thinking about the sunlight being absorbed and being converted into chemical energy, and you're thinking about, I wonder how many angels are around me right now. And you're thinking about the history of the land you're on, how many you're on, how many people have lived here before me. But when you start with this deeper vision of reality, it really can move you to tears just walking outside. It really can. It's it's overwhelming when you look at what's going on. Because a chemist will think in terms of, maybe if I could stop time, stop everything, all you atoms and molecules, stay put. I want to see what you're doing. Maybe we could crack a few mysteries, but we can't do that because time keeps going. So think about that next time you're looking around at stuff. Because, here's my real goal here. I don't want you just to have a bigger vision of reality. I also hope that some of you become scientists one day. And even if you don't become scientists, I want you to understand how faith and science really are a search for truth. They're both a search for truth. Faith has to be the center of everything. But if you see science in the light of faith, you'll be guided the right way. We have some serious issues in our time. They need leaders in the scientific field. The people who don't have faith in God and they're not guided by virtue... They're not guided by practicing prudence and fortitude and temperance and justice. They're not guided by faith, hope, and love. They don't know where they're going. I'm serious. I've worked with them. I'm not saying that negatively. I'm saying the scientific community needs help from people of faith because it's not just science. If you just do science, then you can justify all kinds of horrible things. And even if you're not a horrible person, even if you're trying to do the right thing like I was in graduate school, you're just going to fall flat. You don't have that bigger picture of reality. There are issues with causality in quantum mechanics. All that means is there are some people who conclude from quantum mechanics because we can't predict where particles are going to be, their exact location and velocity, that maybe there is no cause to things. Therefore, there's no God. Ah, that's what they say. It's not like that. We need people out there who can explain that. Because once you go down that path of philosophy, there's no God, there's no causality, 
there's nothing that caused any of us, and then there's no purpose to life before you finish, because if you follow the logic. There are questions about the beginning in time. The beginning in time is not a scientific concept. The Big Bang Theory may assume a beginning in time, but it can't prove a beginning in time. St. Thomas Aquinas says the only way we know there was a beginning in time was because God revealed it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. However, when you go back to this eternally cycling cosmos, it messes up the view of the universe, and it leads science astray. In my book, Science Was Born of Christianity, I talk about that some. Father Yaki's work goes into that in great detail. When science lets go of that revelation, it gets off the tracks. The unity of the universe. There, th this is a philosophical idea, but this is where scientists are needed to keep insisting there is a unity in the universe. Climate change. There needs to be guidance there. Okay, I think everybody can agree that there's, we need to find other resources of energy. We can't just keep burning all the fossil fuels. But there's so much ethics involved in the politics with that. We need leaders who are thinking about it correctly, how to take people's, how to treat the human person with dignity. Evolution and humanity, there are lots of questions in evolution. There's lots. People will say evolutionary theory is a fact and a theory, and, and that's true. I agree with that. There's a lot we don't know. And we need people who aren't afraid to ask questions about what does evolution say about the history of mankind. We need people who aren't afraid to talk about that because that's what theologians do sometimes. They, they have to explore different ideas to, to know whether they're true or not, to, to lead the way in understanding that. Otherwise, we just leave it to people who aren't guided by faith and they don't care about original sin. They're not gonna defend that. So we, we need people of faith in those fields, and there are plenty right now. There are lots of good Catholics who work in evolutionary theory, and they ask questions. What is it? How does it help us understand what it means to be human? Genetic editing. There's there's a lot going on in that field where people are starting to be concerned that they're going to use it to make designer babies or to make clones or to make babies maybe that had three parents. And this is this is actually of critical importance right now in the bioethics fields. There are people who are saying we can grow a human person past 14 days on a slide. Um, what do we do with them now? You know, and Catholics are like, well, you shouldn't have done that in the first place. And, but what happens if they ever do figure out how to grow human persons outside the womb? What happens if those people grow up and are walking around and they don't know who their parents are? What happens if that day ever comes? Who's going to help them? So, you know, maybe that day won't come, but it's time to start looking ahead and asking those questions. Beginning and end of life issues, euthanasia, death with dignity, as they call it. Those are tough questions, too, and there need to be people who are skilled in science and confident in their faith. Confident in the periodic table, too, that God holds all of this in existence. We can trust. We have to see bigger than just death. We have to see beyond that. Feeding the planet, there's lots of work for scientists there. Energy resources, like I did. Communication, look at how we communicate today, globally. The world is more globally connected than ever before. But this brings with it, as anybody who's ever been grounded from Facebook or Twitter knows, it brings with it its own set of problems. Suddenly you can connect with everybody, but wait, is that a good idea? What do you do when you can connect with everybody? There need to be issues as that, as that technology develops, there need to be people who understand the ethics involved as well. Artificial intelligence. 
People need, there are some scientists who predict that by the year 2045, they'll be able to upload brains to computers. Imagine the scam. Somebody says, I got a lot of money, I want my brain uploaded into a computer because I want to be immortal. They pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to do so, and then the person dies. Who's going to ever find out if that brain's really in the computer? Because they'll just say it is, right? Life on other planets, there's a Catholic scientist at MIT working right now. She thinks there might be life on other planets. They're looking into it. What happens if it's ever discovered? So there's lots of work for you guys to do. So learn to see science as a way to evangelize. Learn to see science as a way to reach out to the world. Escort people to that window looking at trees like I did and ask them that big question, who made this? Help them learn to face their sins. Help people learn to have the courage to amend their life. You know what the number one thing you can do to help people have confidence to amend their lives? Live the life of faith. Show them it's okay. I'm still here. It's okay. Everything turned out okay. Things will be hard sometimes, but you can get through it. And so never set your faith aside if you do become a scientist. Don't ever think and don't let anybody ever tell you you have to set your faith aside at the door when you go into the lab. That is not true. It's the opposite, that you've got to be leaders and you've got to convince people of that. And see, don't ever forget science in the light of faith. Okay, that's all. Thank you, guys.